Hello everyone and welcome to Side Dish, an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines relating to the science of food and developing your career in a rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Fresh produce in the USA is a category that's valued at over $65 billion and still growing faster than most other food categories in the retail supermarket. Fresh fruits and vegetables taste great, are an important part of the diet, and they also contain essential vitamins and minerals and fiber and lots of other nutrients that are essential for good health. In fact, research has shown that a diet rich in fruits and vegetables may reduce the risk of cancer and is a key to preventing chronic diet-related illnesses such as cardiovascular disease, obesity, and type 2 diabetes. Yet the fresh produce industry is seeing some significant challenges with water shortages in key growing areas. Issues in food safety, potential impact of climate change, sustainability concerns, and a growing focus on the need to reduce or eliminate wastage from farm to fork has also impacted the industry. It would seem that there's been no better time than right now to be a food scientist focused on the challenges and opportunities of fresh produce. So today we're joined by an exciting guest, Dr. Max Teplitsky, the Chief Science Officer of the Produce Marketing Association. Prior to joining the PMA, Dr. Teplitsky was a national program leader at the USDA. And prior to that, he was a professor at the University of Florida. He currently holds board positions with both the Center for Produce Safety and the Produce for Better Health Foundation. I'm really excited to welcome Max to SciDish. Max, welcome. Bruce, I'm so thrilled to be here. Max, can I ask you to tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be in fresh produce in the first place? That's a great question. And we can go all the way back to my childhood if you want, and uh, but I'll spare you the entire long story, just a quick anecdote. So my mother was a civil engineer, still is. My aunt was an industrial engineer. So I grew up you know, surrounded by blueprints and drawings, and I thought, this is what girls do. They play with machines. So I had to think about a career that's the opposite <laughs> of that, right? So the opposite of engineering is plants. And um, that's how I landed with plants. And um, I translated my passion for plants and growing food into this fantastic position with PMA. So it would seem that the fresh produce industry has lots of challenges at the moment, as per some of the things I said in the introduction there. You know, things like water shortages and labor availability and concerns around sustainability, and not to mention, you know, food waste. So... How would you prioritize what are the biggest issues currently? And can you tell us a little about what's being done to address those? Well, Bruce, you raised a lot of great questions, and each one of those probably warrants a five-hour conversation just right there. Right. Um, in terms of more immediate needs, obviously, if you asked us you know, three, four months ago, what was the issue number one, and the answer would have been labor. And that's not a trivial conversation right there because labor needs are so complex and we're facing sort of two parallel problems. One is with availability of labor day to day for somebody to collect product in the field. But then there's also a need to, to bring um, younger people in the industry. And how do we reconcile those needs is an open-ended question. There have been a lot of hopes for an immigration reform, but I think the COVID showed us that 
even with an immigration reform, there's still going to be challenges that we will experience. So we're seeing a lot of interest in robotics and automation. And I think mm. we'll see a lot of that, especially in the field and uh, in production facilities. And um, since you're asking me this question today, today the answer is um, water and heat and just availability of water, right. especially out west. And um, there is no easy solution there because, again, water and heat and climate, they are part of this bigger conversation on climate change. And um, certainly the short-term need right now out west is to prioritize agriculture for water availability. We're hearing um, conversations about rationing water for irrigation, and that is bordering and criminal because a lot of crops that are in the ground, they're perennial crops. And, um, wow. you know, if we start rationing water for irrigation, a lot of perennial crops, including plants like asparagus or even artichokes, they will be damaged irreversibly. And then three, five years from now, there will be no asparagus, certainly. Mm. Wow. So so water and heat wave is uh, uh, probably the preeminent challenge right now. So how is the industry adjusting to that and what's being looked at for the short-term and, and long-term future here? Yeah, and the water conversation, especially out west, is a perennial conversation. You are seeing, number one, for the long-term, the industry, the produce industry, is pretty engaged in the conversations on climate and um, adaptation to climate change. And um, our industry has been in the forefront of these conversations and um, PMA is certainly leading efforts, especially as they relate to carbon and climate conversations in uh, Washington and uh, in other capitals. And um, we are supporting a lot of meaningful efforts to uh, promote policies that will alleviate the consequences of climate change through uh, adjusting production practices, mm. through rethinking how we grow food, rethinking how we process it and um, how we deliver it to our um, customers. In the short term, there is a need out West right now. And agriculture, especially specialty crop production, they have to be prioritized for uh, water access. There is just no other answer. Right. So, so you can't see any other solutions in the short term other than just a reprioritization? There is a need for water right now. And there will be no other solution uh, right. today and tomorrow. Right. So for the longer term, though, you know, we've seen biotechnology with uh, the application of some of the science there that helps us um, produce more drought tolerant uh, crops. So do you see that there's a, a significant role for um, biotechnology to help part of this in the longer term? Oh, absolutely. Biotechnology is one of the solutions. But there are also engineering solutions. There are also thinking about how we can reorganize, reprioritize um, growing regions. You will see indoor ag becoming more and more prominent and more and more commodities will be growing inside. But also how we manage crops, how we grow them will be quite different in the next three, five years. So it's going to have a huge impact on those folks that are currently in the industry when you consider things like you know, looking at alternative places to grow crops and, and transitioning to indoor farming, that has a major impact on the people that are currently involved in the industry. How How is that being addressed within the structure of the industry today? 
The industry will definitely change, and it's a part of the evolution process, but we're not seeing that as a zero-sum game. It's all of the above. You will right. see indoor growers that are targeting niche markets. You will see field growers producing um, top-notch commodities. So we'll see all of the above because the goal is to increase consumption of fruits and vegetables because, as you know, most Americans don't get even close to consuming enough uh, fruits and vegetables. So we think that there is room for both the indoor and the outdoor producers to supply fresh fruits and vegetables for us every day. Right, yeah. And and your your point is, is, is right on. I mean, CDC is on record as saying that only one in 10 Americans are eating the recommended amount of fresh fruit and vegetables. So what's the PMA doing to help raise the level of consumption in the wider community? And, and what are your recommendations for how we can have a role, all have a role in uh, addressing this shortfall of consumption? Absolutely. So um, within the industry, PMA is leading the effort to promote consumption and promote institutional consumption, institutional access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Because if you think about how and where we consume, we need to be thoughtful about developing practices that instill lifelong health eating habits. Most of us learn to love or not like fresh fruits and vegetables when we're kids, right? Mm -hmm. So PMA has been, um, and also our partners in Unite Fresh, we have been very engaged in making sure that um, school lunch and school breakfast programs, they still continue to include recommended amounts of fresh fruits and vegetables because kids need to learn to appreciate the taste of fresh fruits and vegetables because, you know, there is some bitterness to it. Building a palate, building that excitement begins in the childhood. PMA has also partnered with a wonderful organization called Brighter Bites. And if your listener is not familiar with it, I really encourage everybody to look into what Brighter Bites do. Their model is to instill healthy eating habits in school children. And it's a public-private partnership. They deliver boxes of interesting fresh produce to schools, as well as recipes. And they teach kids to eat fresh, eat healthy, and they measure it, uh, measure the impact throughout both the program and beyond it. Right. So we will link to Brighter Bites in the show notes so that if somebody wants to have a look at that, that it'll be easy for them to link to that. But that sounds like a, an excellent program. How did you manage to secure that relationship with Brighter Bites? How is that playing out for the PMA? It's a natural partnership. And, and the story of Brighter Bites is fascinating. It's these two women in uh, Texas who noticed that their kids were much more interested in eating fruits and vegetables than they were in uh, cake. Wow. And the only reason the kids were so in love with fruits and vegetables is because they were getting these weekly boxes from uh, CSA. And the question they asked was, well, how can we scale it up? Uh, and that's how it all started. And now they're in right. nine cities and they're looking to expand nationwide. So it's a fascinating program. And you know, we certainly want everybody to know about Brighter Bites and help us scale it up. Right. So if you're looking at, you know, exciting fruits and vegetables, one of the things that occurs to me is that uh, it feels like every other year or so that I learn about a new fruit or vegetable, which inspires me and gets me all interested in, in that category again. And, and things I hadn't heard of before. The most recent one that I saw was that spectacular Romanesco broccoli. Can you give us a little bit of a peek under the tent and perhaps tell us about the process of 
how something like a, like a Romanesco broccoli gets into commercial production and what other new fruits and vegetables are you most excited about seeing coming to market? Well, Romanesco is wonderful, isn't it? So have you actually beautiful. <laughs> have you bought it and tried it? Yes, it's amazing. Yeah. How did you fix it? I well, I, I treated it like ordinary broccoli, which probably was a mistake, but it was the only thing I knew how to do. So it, that probably also raises an interesting question: as how do you educate people on the, on the optimum ways to try these things rather than just popping it out there as a mm-hmm. as a random thing for somebody like me to buy? Well, so I describe Romanesco as as a cauliflower with an attitude, but <laughs> yes. attitude is less than that of a broccoli. Mm. Um, so I, I like how, uh, uh, Romanesco. I you know I break it into florets and then I sauté it with olives and um, sausage and then I ah. mix it with pasta and make it into this sort of pasta salad, pasta dish, and it's wonderful. So interesting that you brought up Romanesco. Romanesco is actually not a new crop. It's in one of the ancient crops. It's been around since the 16th century. Yeah. For anybody who hasn't tried Romanesco, wow. have to look into it. And in terms of what's coming on the horizon? I think the answer is depends because we have so many new opportunities. For example, you will see continued reintroduction of what I call forgotten crops. And Romanesco is certainly an example of a forgotten crop. Quinoa is another example of a forgotten crop that just gets reintroduced. We will also see more improved existing varieties. And I think the most improved will be, in terms of taste, will be berries, uh, blueberries and strawberries, right. but also tomatoes. Tomatoes have been leaders, sort of innovations in taste among buying stock vegetables. Some of the things that are not as obvious to consumers, these are different types of architecture and um, a wonderful variety of romaine lettuce is called light bulb lettuce. So it looks um, ah. sort of like romaine, but it's on a taller stalk. So it sits higher off the ground and it has a slightly different texture. Very interesting type of lettuce. And then in terms of new things coming on the market, among the improved, I would identify a ground cherry. You may have seen ground cherry as a, um, it's sold as sunberry, or I've seen it also described as a cape uh, gooseberry, but um, it's actually a relative of a tomato, or actually it's more closely related to tomatillo. It's just a smaller tomatillo. It's yellow. It's sweet Mm -hmm. and sour. It, it, the berry itself is very tasty, but the plant is unruly. It's rambling. It's an annual, but it's going to be improved through the power of genetics because it is so closely related to tomato. Now that we have the genome of tomato, we can compare it to the genome of this ground cherry, and we can breed for varieties that actually look like plants that can be cultivated instead of you know these rambling weeds. So look for ground cherries to be right introduced into commercial production, scaled up. And um, those of you who haven't tried ground cherries should really try some ground cherries. They're delightful. We will also see new, yeah, we will also see new biotech crops. Um, An example, of course, is the pink pineapple. So this is a genetically modified um, Mm -hmm. plant. And again, it offers a new dimension of flavor and uh, it has traits that are not normally found in nature, like the pink color. My guess is we will also see this continuation of acceptance of um, sort of exotic fruits and vegetables. My nomination there for the most likely to succeed is an amaranth. Amaranth is already culturally sort of acceptable and actually prized. 
in um, Asian and uh, Caribbean cuisines, Kalalulu, for example. It's really mm-hmm. easy to grow because it's related to pigweed. And it's a plant that I think will be more and more seen on the shelves. You've also asked me to think about what mm. will be the new kale, right? And uh, everybody asked me, what is the new You're kale? right, yes. So my nomination... Yeah, what's the, the new ex- exciting hot vegetable? Yes. <laughs> yeah, my nomination for the next kale is watercress. Mm. It has the interesting flavor profile. It's an unusual crop that's, again, easy to grow, right. primed to enter the market. And we'll also see a lot of innovation in um, pre-made salad mixes. I'm sure you have noticed ah, that each year yeah. we have new pre-mixed salads. And each mix is interesting, different flavor profiles. They're very exciting. So look for a lot of innovation in that space as well. So something like, you, you, as you said, your, your recommendation or, uh, or view that uh, watercress is going to be the next kale, is the way that comes into the market via a salad mix so that it's not so hard for people to get their heads around how to use it and how to digest it and what have you? So it's not my recommendation. It's my uh, prediction. Your, your tip, yes, yes. Sorry, your prediction, yes. So I think if you think about kale, it's... Very interesting example of something that came to the market and then we figured out what to do with it, Mm. right? And all of a sudden you see kale in savory dishes, you see kale in uh, desserts, you see kale in smoothies, you see kale everywhere. Right. So my prediction is watercress will be just like that. People will see it, they will taste it, and then they'll try to figure out what to do with it. Right. So you also raised uh, one of the the new vegetables you mentioned was the light bulb lettuce, which brings up the whole concept of leafy greens and the stability of leafy greens and the uh, food integrity associated with leafy greens. And earlier this year, we saw the FDA make a statement about the presence of E. coli O157 being a reasonably foreseeable hazard for leafy greens, which kind of changed the game for leafy greens, in my opinion. How has that impacted the growers and processes of leafy greens and what's different for you now in terms of food safety? Yeah, I, I wish FDA were more responsible in the words that they choose. A reasonably foreseeable hazard takes it to um, hazard-based, not risk-based decision-making. Mm. And let me give you an example. On July 8th, California Leafy Greens Marketing Agreement, LGMA, which is a volunteer organization of uh, growers out west. They voted for a risk-based testing in the field. And the difference between hazard-based and risk-based analysis is um, what LGMA is proposing is we will assess risk and then we will test product in the field four to seven days prior to harvest. And we will test it in the sufficient numbers so that we have a 95% chance of detecting Um, pathogen, even if it's present in very, very low numbers. And that's how you do it, through risk-based assessment. Right. We need to understand the risks first and then conduct assessments based on it. Blanket statements like, you know, a reasonably foreseeable hazard are truly harmful, not to the industry, but to the public health. So let me share with you a couple of data points. And one of them is a study from Tufts University that was published in 2019, in June of 2019. Right. 
And what the Tufts researchers are saying is one in seven cardiovascular deaths could be prevented by eating fruit. And one in 12 cardiovascular death can be prevented by eating vegetables. And they estimate that low fruit and vegetable intake results in 2.8 million of cardiovascular death each year. Wow. So that is a real hazard, not eating enough fresh fruits and vegetables. Mm. And when somebody comes out and says, you know, we hypothesize that there is a reasonably foreseeable hazard, what we know is not eating enough fruits and vegetables is a real risk. Right. And it results in 2.8 million deaths each year. So that's a conversation that I would like FDA to lead. Although there, there are different conversations. The, the Tufts University recommendations that you put forward are, are more about over the long term, uh, not enough consumption can lead to these kinds of levels of deaths, whereas the FDA is talking about over the short term, they were talking about the hazards. Now, I, I do agree with you that risk, talking about risk is better than talking about hazards because managing risk is, is the only really way to move forward. So how do you balance those two off? You know, we're talking short-term versus long-term. Is there a different way we can look at the short-term issues? Oh, absolutely. And you bring up a good point, Bruce. There was a time a couple of decades ago when we didn't know much about salmonella and E. coli. It's true. Mm, true. But over the last 20 years, the science has changed and also the industry have changed. Right. The industry has put in place voluntary measures that promote microbiological food safety of fresh fruits and vegetables. I don't know how many of your listeners have been in a production field, but every time I go visit production fields, you know, they make us put um, mm. booties and face masks and hairnets in the field. That is an example of the... Wow. One of the things that the industry is doing, mm. you know, some can say that, well, a hairnet in the field is performative, but it's a part of the food safety culture and beyond just hairnets, you will see that there are hand washing stations with soap in each field so that the workers can right. uh, wash the hands. Right. The water is being tested beyond what the FDA requires. The product is now being tested. USDA Economic Research Service conducted a study to look at how these practices that the industry put in place impact the bottom line. What USDA is seeing is since the 2017, the industry has increased the staff by 38% just to look at food safety issues. They also report mm -hmm. that a quarter wow. of the time of foremen in the field who are harvesting fruits and vegetables is dedicated to ensuring microbiological safety of the product. So there are eyes and ears and hands that are in the field that are focused exclusively on food safety. There is water testing, there is product testing. Now that we understand the risks and over these two decades since the, the most impactful outbreaks, it's a different industry with a different set of practices and the product that um, the industry puts out is the safest in the world. There is no, I, I challenge you mm. to find fruits and vegetables anywhere in the world that are more safe than what you buy in the supermarkets. Yeah, I, I'm, I must admit, I've spent quite a bit of time in the fields and, and I have absolute confidence that, that what I buy in the supermarket is very, very safe. And the, 
the risks are being controlled and managed. So it changed gears a little bit. And uh, recently, I heard that there's some potential concerns about the use of those little PLU or the price lookup stickers that we see in the supermarket on most of our fruits in particular. What's the value of those little stickers and what would be the consequences if they're no longer permitted? That's a great question. And um, I think what you heard is France banning these PLU stickers on uh, fresh produce and uh, Belgium and New Zealand are also looking into doing similar things. Wow. And um, the reason they're banning them is because current PLU stickers, they're not compostable at home. They're compostable on a commercial scale, just not at home. And clearly for those of us who compost things at home, they are a bit of an annoyance. Yeah. But let me tell you what will happen if they're banned. If you go to a grocery store and you see uh, bulk produce on display, they have PLU stickers, and that's what price lookup, right? That's what allows a checkout clerk to get you the correct price for the apples or for the tomatoes. And without PLU stickers, there are several options. Option number one is to bag everything and then attach a price tag to a bag, Mm -hmm. which if you think about plastic pollution or just packaging waste, it will increase millionfold because now every apple or every two apples will need to be bagged. Also, if you sort of, if you decide, well, we're not going to bag, we'll have checkout clerks look up prices for each commodity. So if you're frustrated with lines at the grocery store now, just imagine how long it will take (laughs) to get through the line uh, without the PLU sticker. They look almost exactly the same. You know, red apples, they look very similar, whether they are organic or whether they are um, a different variety. So the task of the checkout clerks is going to be, um, you know, quite significant. And lastly, PLU stickers have some information on them that will allow us to track a product a lot if it's uh, potentially Mm. contaminated. So banning PLU stickers will increase plastic waste. It will reduce efficiency of um, operation. It will not enhance customer experience at the checkout. And uh, it will almost certainly result in the reduced offerings at uh, local supermarkets. So one part of this conversation and another part is the industry is working on developing biodegradable, home compostable PLU stickers. And I would say we're three to five years away, but it's something that that's what we're working on. Right. Very good. So what is it that you most enjoy about working in this fresh produce industry? Well, number one is, you know, being basically a spokesperson or a um, advocate for commodity. It makes me feel really good waking up in the morning that knowing that I advocate for the healthiest product on the planet. And, you know, it fills my day with joy every time that I get to talk about Romanesco and gooseberries and tomatoes and (laughs) lettuce. It's just fascinating. The world of fresh produce is infinite. Seriously, though, Mm. making sure that all Americans, more broadly, everybody on the planet has access to fresh fruits and vegetables is critical. And um, how do we get there is what keeps me up at night. 
Right. So you've certainly covered a lot of territory today and given me some insight as to uh, what opportunities a food scientist would, could attack, as well as the challenges, and uh, including the, uh, the upside of working in this industry. So as we finish up here today, what is it that you would want food scientists to know about working in this segment of the industry and why it's so appealing, why it should be so appealing to them? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I think so many of people who live in a city, they still have this pastoral image of the industry, right? Old McDonald, American Gothic. Yeah. And this is not what the industry is like. If you really want to visualize fresh produce industry, think drones, think high-tech data analysis, think precision agriculture, think robots that pluck weeds from the fields, Think robots with little tiny robotic arms that harvest strawberries and tomatoes. Think data-driven innovation. Think biotechnology and breeding that is efficient, that looks at genetics and converts you know, data to discovery on an expedited scale. So if any of the folks who are listening are at the crossroads of their sort of career decision-making, I certainly encourage everybody to look into careers in the produce industry. It's a very different industry from what you think it is. So, Max, the PMA, of course, is, a, is an organization with quite a number of resources. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the resources that our listeners might be able to get access to that will help them learn more about the fresh produce industry? Certainly. There is a wealth of information on PMA.com, but I'm most excited to share a link to the PMA Takes on Tech podcast. This is where we talk about all the innovations in the fresh produce space. So I think it's a fascinating listen for everybody who is in the industry and everybody who is interested in learning more about the industry. Excellent. And they can find the, that podcast uh, in the usual places where podcasts are found in uh, Apple and Google and Spotify. Exactly. It can be found wherever you cast your pods. And also you can listen to it from the PMA.com website directly. PMA takes on tech. Excellent. Thanks. Look, thank you very much for your time and your insights today, Max. I've really enjoyed hearing about all your wonderful experiences and and recommendations for uh, things, new things that we can potentially see in the supermarket in the future, and I'm looking forward to uh, accessing some of those. So uh, thank you very much, Max. Well, thank you, Bruce. This is always exciting, and um, let's talk again. I'll look forward to it. So thank you also to our listeners. If you're enjoying our side dish, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you source your podcasts or by connecting with IFT. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at IFT and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and LinkedIn. For more on the subject of fresh produce, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in the subject that you're interested in in the search box and you'll get access to a ton of new resources. Thank you for listening to Side Dish today. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Have a great day, everyone. Mm